This is Lucas Michaels of Ironmark Law Group here in Seattle, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 44 of IP Fridays. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and a successful year 2016. Today, fellow colleague Lucas Michaels will tell us about the TTP and how it harmonizes copyright law internationally and how it will impact copyright enforcement. Also, the European Patent Office tells us that they are ready to take on the unitary patent and the European Union is trying to reform copyright. Last month, a draft of the European Commission Communication on Copyright Reform was leaked through an intellectual property law blog. The communication outlines the need to adapt copyright rules to new technological realities so that the rules continue to meet their objectives. Julia Rida, a German member of the European Parliament, published a blog entry entitled Ancillary Copyright 2.0. The European Commission is preparing a frontal attack on the hyperlink. Rida states that each web link would become a legal landmine and would allow press publishers to hold every single person who would post a web link on the internet liable. Copyright holders seem to be concerned about their content being monetized by others without licensing through content aggregation. So Spain and Germany have already implemented laws designed to prevent aggregation of content. Many people fear that aligning copyright laws may disrupt the status quo of hyperlinks on the Internet. If you want to read the full story, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash hyperlinks, www.ipfridays.com slash hyperlinks. On December 15th, the European Patent Office published a press release where the president states that the EPO, the European Patent Office, is ready to take on the unitary patent. The Select Committee, which represents the EU member states participating in the new unitary patent, formalized a series of agreements into a complete secondary legal framework comprising the implementing rules, budgetary and financial rules, the level of the renewal fees and the rules concerning the distribution of the renewal fees between the EPO and the participating member states. Now, the only thing that remains to be completed is opening the Unified Patent Court and, of course, ratification of the agreement by the member states. The president of the European Patent Office expects ratification to be complete in the year 2016. If you want to read the full press release, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash unitarypatent. 
www.ipfridays.com slash unitary patent. Now, Ken and Lucas, tell us more about the TTP and the effect on copyright. Ralph, I'm joined today by Lucas Michaels, who is a Seattle-based intellectual property and business attorney at Ironmark Law Group. Prior to becoming a lawyer, Lucas worked in trade policy and trade-regulated regulatory affairs. As a result, he focuses a significant part of his practice on assisting his clients with protecting their intellectual property rights when entering new foreign markets, with an emphasis on cross-border online trademark and copyright enforcement. He has written several articles on this topic in academic and trade journals, such, such as the European Intellectual Property Review and the Siapura Chronicle, as well as several IP and legal blogs, such as the IP Cat, Art and the Artifice, and his own cross-border and trade-focused IP blog, The IP Exporter, among others. Today, Lucas will discuss the topic of his upcoming article for the European Intellectual Property Review, namely the online copyright enforcement implications under the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Lucas, welcome to IP Fridays. Thank you for having me. Lucas, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your practice? What is it all about? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I assist uh, businesses with their domestic and international intellectual property um, and general business issues. And since I started my practice um, almost three years ago, I work with I worked with a lot of businesses and retailers who you know sell their goods and services online and um, run into a lot of online copyright and trademark enforcement needs. Mm-hmm. And um, this is you know just you know, organically become a large part of my practice. And, you know, early on in my practice as well, I also worked with a number of um, persons and entities that have been victims of online harassment. And, you know, while it's in theory different than a lot of the traditional online copyright trademark protection, I've assisted a number of clients with issues concerning revenge pornography and other online harassment, which has required assisting them, you know, in fact, with personality rights and copyright protection issues. Mm-hmm. And so it's become a big part of my practice. And um, since, you know, first starting out, I've kind of focused a lot on assisting clients with developing cost-effective online copyright and trademark enforcement measures, as well as helping service providers ensure their compliance um, under U.S. foreign law. Excellent. Now, today we're going to talk about the TPP. Lucas, what is the TPP? Well, the, the TPP, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is one of the biggest free trade agreements ever envisioned. Um, it's taken a, you know over eight years to implement, and it's going to have implications for all Americans as well as anyone living in, on the Pacific Rim and throughout the world. Um, it was basically started as kind of a, I wouldn't say an all-ball trade agreement, but between smaller countries between uh, um, around the Pacific Rim, and when the United States joined, another other countries did as well. And you know, today there's 12 countries, including some of the largest markets around the Pacific Rim, including Japan, Canada, United States, Mexico, mm-hmm. Australia, Chile, and others. And you know, it, the agreement itself that was finalized in October, I think, this year, basically provided a large number of um, harmonization and minimum requirements under the, the law for a number of different topics. And one of them, obviously, for this one is it impacts greatly on copyright and intellectual property rights. Mm-hmm. Now, how will the TPP impact national IP laws in TPP member states? Well, like any trade agreement or kind of multilateral treaty, the Trans-Pacific Partnership has uh, terms and provisions that basically establish 
um, minimum requirements that member states must adopt in order to maintain, in order to comply with their treaty obligations. And in a lot of ways, the Trans-Pacific Partnership isn't that different than other existing treaties like the World Trade Organization's TRIPS Agreement or the Berne Convention. But what makes the Trans-Pacific Partnership different in a lot of respects is that it basically requires um, that that member states adopt a lot of U.S.-like protections for copyright, especially in the digital environment. And in a lot of ways, it goes beyond the traditional agreements under Berne, TRIPS, and the World Intellectual Property Organization um, Internet treaties, and in effect, basically harmonizes U.S. laws with a lot of other foreign countries. And, and tell us a little more, Lucas, about how um, the TPP's online copyright enforcement provisions go beyond uh, what, we, what we're calling the existing international treaties. Yeah, so what the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership does is it, it lays out kind of broad terms about what countries must do to provide online copyright protection. And what it does, and how it does this is basically it says that the country should establish legal remedies for rights holders of copyright protected works um, to um, enforce their rights in the online environment. And it basically calls these quote-unquote legal incentives, and basically meaning that it gives countries the ability to provide legal incentives for, for Internet service providers, meaning people who host content on the Internet, to remove um, an allegedly infringing content um, with basically through a, a notification system. Mm-hmm. And while it's broad in, you know, in its scope, it does require that basically that the service providers, once they're notified of this content, expeditiously remove or disable access, which basically brings in the U.S.-like protections under the D- Digital Money Copyright Act to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That being said, there's two kind of main exceptions to this, and they're basically based on country exceptions. One is that it allows Canada's current safe harbor protection system for service providers, a notice system, which is like the, D- the Digital Line Copyright the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, but different in that instead of requiring that service providers remove infringing content upon notification, it only requires that the service providers notify their subscribers of the allegedly infringing conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, it basically allows CAN to preserve its current system, and it allows Chile that has an expedited judicial system in place to um, to to order service providers to remove infringing content to preserve their system. But a couple, there's a couple of important things to keep in mind with this. First is that Canada's system, and it's been criticized a lot by a lot of Canadian um, uh, academics and other people on the subject, um, there's the argument can be made that their system um, isn't basically, um, it will basically, in a, in, a, in a backwards way, require that Canada adopt the, the, the Digital Income Copyright Act. Um, Michael Geist is a pretty uh, famous Law professor in Canada basically had two major criticisms. They found this first is that the Canadian system, um, well, at the time that the agreement was executed, required that the Canadian government actually had forced or that they had given incentives and um, and it required that um, sorry that service providers in Canada um, um, effectuate court orders um, like concerning online content, mm-hmm. and they also basically um, and what he, you know, what his main valid point about this was the fact that it, the reality is that the Canadian government doesn't do this, and because their job isn't to make sure that service providers enforce um, judicial orders, that's the judiciary's role. And the secondly um, is that basically a lot of these 
you know, because the court order clause of the actual trans-Pacific partnership um, doesn't, you know, specify between a national court order versus any court order in a country, it would require service providers in Canada to basically acknowledge U.S. like um, decisions, sorry, U.S. De- decisions on Canadian um, um, on Canadian service providers. So in effect, it has this extra this extraterritorial effect to it. How do these reforms potentially impact the copyright rights holders? Can you give me a little bit of a of your sure. analysis on that question? Sure. Well, what it really does is, you know, it gives rights holders and, you know, copyright for, you know, is one of the things that people obtain copyright in their works in most countries because most countries have adopted the Berne Convention on their treaties. And so what this will basically, the ship will do, assuming that countries adopt it, as kind of envisioned under the agreement, will allow them to basically better enforce their works in an extrajudicial manner, namely they don't have to go to court to get service providers from the content more easily. Mm-hmm. That being said, there's a lot of wiggle room and there's a lot of, you know, flexibility granted to um, these member states to adopt the provisions as they wish. And there's no terms concerning potential damages or you repeat infringer policies or things that are typically provided under the digital and copyright and other more forceful um, service provider safe harbors. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while it, on, on paper and in theory, it could basically provide rights holders greater rights to enforce their rights, you know, beyond the borders of their country, it remains to be seen how these countries will adopt their safe harbor provisions and whether it will actually deter service providers enough to actually act on foreign notifications. What do you think the service providers are going to, how are they going to react? Uh, what's the potential impact on, from their side of the fence? Well, you know, there, that's been one of the big like criticisms of the SIF um, harbor system, the fact that it's going to require um, service providers to acknowledge, you know, DMC-like provisions in countries that might, that might not already have it, and that's what Professor Geist had mentioned in one of his articles. But the reality is a lot of major service providers who provide their services around the world already have those systems in place. Um, Shopify, which is one of Canada's biggest um, safe harbors, already has a DMCA-like system in place because they do enough business in the United States in order to qualify for your jurisdiction. So they already, and, and in other jurisdictions, they have notice and takeover, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and takeover-like systems. And so the reality is, you know, while it will require service providers to do this and there might be a cost to adopting such systems, Big enough service providers who are already in commerce throughout the globe already acknowledge this in a lot of respects. Lucas, what are the chances that the TPP's final agreement language will be implemented as given? The reality is it's pretty uncertain, um, you know, especially because a number of the countries who don't qualify for the, the Canadian or Chilean exemptions are going to be required, at least in theory, to adopt the U.S.'s a U.S.-like system in their country. Mm-hmm. And the reality is a lot of the trans-Pacific partnership countries have already rejected it, um, you know, through their own means. You know, Chile, for example, had actually had terms in their free trade agreement, at least initially with, with the United States, that um, that that basically that they were going to adopt a system um, uh, similar to the, the Digital and Copyright Act, mm-hmm. but they didn't. And, you know, Vietnam and Mexico haven't adopted systems yet, and there's been back... Um, there's been backlash in those countries to, to do so. So, and because the Trans-Pacific Partnership gives a lot of flexibility, even if a country does, again, adopt a system, it remains to be seen to what extent that system will be effective in actually, you know, de- you know, deterring s- service providers from inaction, but also give rights holders the, you know, the tools they need to fight online trademark and copyright. Mm-hmm. Lucas, uh, we only have a few minutes left. 
uh, for our listeners, could you summarize the main takeaways uh, from the TTP safe harbor provisions? What is it that they should be concerned about and potentially advise their clients? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is this is all tenuous. While it's on paper, it, it looks like there's a lot of um, potential reforms that could radically help rights holders to enforce their rights in the work also impact how service providers deal with online copyright and trademark enforcement. At the end of the day, the member states themselves, the 12 countries, have to actually um, ratify these laws under their national legislatures. And it remains to be seen, A, whether they do that, and B, to what extent, you know, and, and to what extent they do so, um, how that impacts the actual strength of those systems and laws. Because while they can adopt it, you know, if there's no deterrence in terms of damages and other things like that, it might not be an effective system. Um, and again, as with any notice and tape corporate like system, it can be abused. And so there's obviously issues concerning internet freedom and the things that apply. And as you know, this is a lot of ways the U.S. is like system. There's been criticisms that this um, that the provision of the safe harbor, you know, obviously impacts the sovereignty of the other Trans-Pacific Partnership member states. Lucas, thanks so much for joining us today on IP Fridays. Great. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.